So we are continuing through the book of Luke. We are continuing uh, in Luke chapter 13. It is, it is a privilege to be able to take the word of God and to just go through it and to, and to get to know Jesus better. Because that's what's happening here in the gospel. We're watching the life of Jesus. We're watching Jesus as he interacts with people, as he faces things like we face. And what does Jesus say? How does Jesus respond? And we're going to look here this morning at a passage which is seemingly kind of, if you were just reading the gospel, you might just roll over this. You might, this might just be one of those, like, okay. Uh, but the fact is there's some really important truths in this passage, important for us. So let me read it to you. It's Luke chapter 13, verse 31 just at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to Jesus, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. To understand this passage requires some background. Understand that when Luke wrote his gospel, and when each of the gospel accounts were written, they were written to the people who lived in the first century. The people who lived in the first century had the background I'm about to give you. In fact, I'm sure they had more than the background I'm about to give you. But you need some insight into this passage to really kind of get what's going on. Otherwise, it's just kind of like, oh, well, that's interesting. Um, it's more than interesting. There are specific issues that are being discussed and going on here. So the Herods, they say, go away, Herod wants to kill you. Well, which Herod is this? There's actually a couple of Herods in the Bible. There is Herod the Great. You'll recall that when Jesus was born, Herod the Great was the one who slaughtered all the children in Bethlehem, two years, all the boys in Bethlehem, two years old and younger. That was Herod the Great. That's the father of this Herod. Herod the Great... Uh, there's, there's actually a lot of history. Uh, we could talk about Herod the Great for quite a while. I'm not going to. But he was, he was a maniac. I mean, he was, he was murderous. He had about 10 wives, maybe more. He had no problem having several of them murdered, along with other various family members who he in any way thought were a threat to his rule. Now, he ruled all of the region of Israel. For the Romans, by the way. He was an Edomian. Uh, he was a, a descendant of Edom. Uh, so he wasn't actually, he was a descendant of Abraham, but he wasn't Jewish. It was uh, the other line. So, I mean, they especially hated having this guy ruling over them. Uh, Herod was also, Herod the Great, was the guy who built their temple. And he was a, as politicians go, he was a politician. He understood that if I build your temple, you'll, you know, be a little happier towards me, maybe. Didn't really work, by the way. Uh, they were 43 years or so building Herod's temple. They, they didn't con actually finish it until after Jesus died. Uh, so it was a beautiful building, I mean, as those things go, right up until 70 AD when the Romans, of course, destroyed it and dragged every stone of it down into the Kidron Valley. But, you know, prior to that, it was, 
It was a beautiful edifice. In fact, the disciples will get on the Mount of Olives and point out the beautiful building. And he'll look at them and say, guys, not one stone is going to be left on top of another. Don't be worshiping the building. Let's, don't, don't do that. This building is going away. But Herod built that. Herod was also, Herod the Great, this is also a guy that when he knew his health was declining and that the moment was going to come he was actually going to die, he had his soldiers arrest all 70 of the elders who made up the Sanhedrin and said to them, when I die, I know that this nation is going to have a party. So here's what I want you to do. When I die, kill all 70 of the elders of the Sanhedrin. What a guy, huh? What a guy. Okay, that's Herod the Great. That's the father of the guy we're presently looking at. So the guy we're presently looking at, when Herod the Great died, the, his, his kingdom, Israel, was divided up into three sections. So Archelaus got Judea, Samaria, and Idumea, which is the southern area of Israel. Philip another son, got the northern area, which would be Galilee, north of Galilee and a little to the east. So he got, the capital there was Caesarea Philippi, which we would know as Lebanon today, up there on the Lebanese border. So we got the northern region. And then the center region, where the Sea of Galilee was, and on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, over there would be Perea. This is where Herod is ruling. So Jesus spent a lot of his time in this area. In fact, his center was right there around the Sea of Galilee. The, the capital of that was Tiberias, which is a city on the Sea of Galilee. Interesting to note, of all four Gospels, of all the ministry that Jesus do, did, of all of the towns and cities that he went to, there's no record he ever went to Tiberias. Which, you know, if you've ever been over there, you realize, you know, the Sea of Galilee is not that big. It's, you know, you can stand up on any kind of hillside and you need to see the whole thing. And Tiberias is probably where you stayed. And so it's just this, you know, city on the, on the seashore. Jesus, there's no record that Jesus ever went there. There's no record, by the way, that Jesus ever says anything to Herod. Never, never talks to the guy. Now, Herod is in charge. He is plenty wicked, forget his dad. He's plenty wicked all in his own right. Uh, this is the guy you will remember who, when he got put in charge, so here he is, he's in the center region, and in the northern region is his brother Philip. He decides to visit Rome. And on his way to visit Rome, he stops in to visit his brother Philip. And his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. You know, he and Herodias hit it off really good. In fact, they hit it off so good that Herodias left Philip and went with Herod. You may recall, John the Baptist got up and denounced the two of them for that. It is not lawful, Herod, for you to have your brother's wife. She was a little ambitious, and she manipulated her husband, Herod, in the midst of a 
banquet to get her daughter, his stepdaughter, to come in and dance for him. And you will recall, he foolishly, agreed to give her up to half the kingdom if she wanted it. And this was the moment for his manipulative wife to manipulate him. And why should she bother asking for half the kingdom? She's already got the whole kingdom. She's got him wrapped around a little finger. What she wants is John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so that's what she tells her daughter to ask for, who she does. And, of course, Herod, who can't figure out how to get out of this. I mean, he kind of likes John the Baptist. He goes down and talk to him all the time. But, oh, he doesn't want to embarrass him. Heaven forbid he should say, you know, John the Baptist is worth more than half my kingdom. Oh, no. No, he's not going to do that. He's too weak-willed. He's too immoral. And this is going to make him look bad politically. So he has John the Baptist killed. Send somebody down there. Take his head off. I'll give it to my wife. Great. So here we have this guy who is immoral, easily manipulated, willing to steal his own brother's wife, unable to extract himself from any kind of idiotic vow he'd made, and he can be, he can be manipulated. Okay, so now with that in mind, with a little bit of history, which by the way, everyone would have known. So now you know. Now, let's read the passage. Just at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to Jesus, you need to leave here because Herod wants to kill you. Okay. Aren't these Pharisees, I mean, what do we have here? Do we suddenly have a group of Pharisees who are actually concerned about Jesus' health? I mean, we suddenly get a group of Pharisees who are like, oh, we're concerned that Herod might actually harm Jesus. Uh, yeah, no, I don't think so. That's not what's going on. The Pharisees themselves are proud, they're manipulative, somewhat neurotic, they're a little obsessive-compulsive, you know? They, I mean, you think you straighten stuff out and you're a little control freak, okay, these guys were way beyond any of that. Their existence was built on a systematic one-upmanship of each other to show that I am holier than you. And they went to... I, I mean volumes of extremes. They, they literally wrote volumes of commentary about the law so that they could show themselves to be more holy than everyone else. Well, along comes Jesus, and he's not a member of this group. He's not part of this group. In fact, not only is he not part of this group, but he has this, this astounding grasp of the Old Testament and has this ability to make them all look like idiots and hypocrites successfully. It's like, you don't do that to us. You don't, you don't debase us and debunk us and, and delegitimize who we are. We do that to other people. You don't do that to us. But Jesus did do that to them. He made them look just like the ignorant hypocrites that they were because they were and claimed to speak for God. They didn't. Their entire power structure was built on people fearing them and respecting them. I mean, Jesus said, you know, you, you love to go into the marketplace where everyone, oh, says how wonderful you are. Where everyone, uh, you stand on street corners and play a trumpet and then, and then you start praying. So everyone will go, oh, aren't they just so holy? They're so religious. Yeah, okay. Hope that works for you because barely you have your reward. Now, in fairness, a little bit to the Pharisees, uh, Jesus does clearly claim to be the Messiah. They can go back to their Old Testament and they can say, all right, when the Messiah shows up, a certain set of events are supposed to transpire. 
A certain set of events are supposed to come to pass. I mean, you do say you're the Messiah, right? So they would have turned to passages. And by the way, his own disciples saw these passages and wondered the exact same thing. So if you went to like Isaiah 11, verse 10, in that day, what day? Well, the day in which the Messiah shows up. Okay, so in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who, by the way, will stand as a signal for the people. His resting place will be glorious, and it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of the people, who will remain from Assyria and Egypt and Pathos and Cush and Elam and Shinar and Hamath and from the islands of the sea, and he will lift up a standard for the nations, and he'll assemble all of the banished ones of Israel. And gathered the disposed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Well, that doesn't seem to be happening. I mean, if you're the Messiah, why isn't that happening? We can go to Isaiah 59. The Lord saw that there was no man, and he was astonished that there was no one to intercede. So he brought his own arm to salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. And he put on righteousness like a breastplate, and salvation on his head and he put on a garment of vengeance for clothing he wrapped himself with a zeal as a mantle according to his deeds he repaid them wrath to his adversaries recompense to his enemies to the coastlands he'll make recompense so they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun which is the east and he will come like a rushing stream with the wind of the Lord a redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. Well, if you're the Messiah, then, I mean, where is this? You're, I mean, you're supposed to come here and, and, and you're supposed to recompense. You know, you're supposed to get out here. Show vengeance on the enemies of God. Isaiah 60, arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen from you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, darkness will cover the people. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear to you. Where is this? Zechariah, in that day, says the Lord of hosts, ten men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Is that happening? This isn't happening. Zechariah will go on in chapter 12. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David, the, the great warrior, the one who defeated Goliath. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. In that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. If you're the Messiah, Jesus, where is this? Aren't you going to be destroying all the nations? I mean, the Romans rule us. Haven't you noticed? In fact, the guy that's ruling over us is this guy named Herod. Where's your army? Where are you going to rise up in vengeance? When are you going to lead us? I mean, in that day, isn't this that day? I mean, you say you're the Messiah. His own disciples, by the way, if you pay attention, they're kind of waiting for the same thing. They're like, I we can't quite connect the dots. But, you know, is, is, is the kingdom here yet? I mean, when are we going to go out here and get this done? Um, so the Pharisees, they're like, this, this guy cannot possibly be the Messiah. Not to mention, of course, that he completely condemns them. Uh, so they've decided that they're going to put Jesus in a position 
where they can prove to everyone he's not the Messiah. We'll show everybody this guy's not the Messiah. Watch this. And so they come to him and get this report. Now, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to think about how this might have come about. I mean, it's, it's not recorded specifically here. Although Jesus will say to them, you go back and tell Herod, indicating what? Well, you know, somebody whispered in Herod's ear. Somebody went to Herod and said, hey, you know, this Jesus guy says he's the Jewish Messiah. And um, <clears throat> here, you might want to get a look at some of this, you know, Jewish prophecies about what the Messiah is going to do. He's going to raise up an army. He's going to overthrow those people who are trampling in Jerusalem, which, by the way, it'd be you. And, uh, you know, he's going to declare himself the king of the Jews. You might want to do something about that. <clears throat> I wonder who would come to Herod and put that bug in his ear. Let's see. Who that, that? Yeah, we all know who that is. These guys. That's why Jesus says to them, you go back and tell Herod. Why? Because he knows. He knows that they've gone to Herod and they've given Herod these prophecies, which, by the way, Herod is easily manipulated. We know the record shows that he is. He's morally weak. He's insecure. He's got a guilty conscience about having killed John the Baptist. And he's scared of Jesus. Jesus is a threat. And he knows from dad, the best thing to do with threats is eliminate them. So, I, I've no doubt that the fact is Herod was actually looking to kill Jesus. I, I'll bet he was. I, I'm sure, particularly after they got done with him. Hey, you need, really need to get rid of this guy. So here's what they, they're, they're not here trying to somehow protect Jesus. They're over here trying to get Jesus to do something that they want him to do. Now, if you've read your Old Testament, You've seen this happen before. There was another guy that this exact same tactic was tried on. His name was Nehemiah. If you read the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah leaves over there at Sushan the palace, and he goes over and he helps them build the wall. And of course, there's a group of people who don't want them to build the wall, because if you build the wall in the ancient world, to build a wall provided you with autonomy. And the last thing they wanted was an independent Jerusalem. So they did everything they could to keep Nehemiah from actually accomplishing this task. So by Nehemiah chapter 6, he's got the wall pretty much complete, except none of the gates are in place. And of course, if you don't have any gates, well, you know, you, the wall is nice, but if you don't close those gates, we can still march an army through here. So they're like, ah, time to pull out all the stops. We've got to do everything we can to prevent him from putting those gates up or the world, it's, it's just going to, be, it's going to be done. So the leaders, the Samaritans, they start sending Nehemiah letters. Oh, we need to get together. We need to meet. We, uh, we need you to, to come on down here and, and to meet with us and to discuss some stuff. He's like, why in the world should I, he answers them, why should I do that? I'm kind of busy in case you guys hadn't noticed. Then they, they tried that four or five times, and then they sent a letter, an open letter. And in this open letter, they said, Nehemiah is trying to make himself the king of Jerusalem. And he's trying to declare independence from Xerxes, who is the actual king of the empire. And, oh, by the way, Nehemiah, not only are we sending this letter to you, we want you to know that we're sending this letter to Xerxes, too. And we're, we're sending this letter to the whole kingdom so that everyone knows what you're up to and that you've actually hired prophets to go before you and to declare you the king of Jerusalem. 
Now, you're going to come talk to us? No. No. So, Nehemiah chapter 6, and I want to read this to you, verse 10. This is their final effort. So, he says, I enter the house of this guy, and I mean, I could read it all, but I enter the house of this guy, and he says to me, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they're coming to kill you. Sound, sound familiar? And, and they're coming to kill you tonight. But I said, should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I, I, I'll not go in. I mean, the priests go in the temple, not me. I, I'm not supposed to be in the temple. Then I perceived that surely God had not sent him. But he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him, the, the two enemies. He was hired for this reason, that I might become frightened and act accordingly and sin, so that they might have an evil report in order to reproach me. That fits hand in glove to the very passage we're looking at. They come to Jesus and they don't say it. But they're thinking, okay, you're the Messiah? Well, everybody, everybody watch. Everybody watch this. We're going to make this guy run for his life. Hey, Herod is looking to kill you. Uh, if Jesus had taken the bait, as it were, oh, well, I guess I better go. Um, what, do you, what do you suppose that? Ah, some Messiah this guy is, huh? Look at this. The Messiah, oh, he's supposed to lead us in victory over our enemies. And the minute we told him Herod was seeking his life, he ran for his life. You know that that's exactly what they wanted to say. This is the prophet, supposedly, that John baptized. And oh, by the way, we all know what Herod did to John. And look what Herod wants to do to Jesus. And Jesus is scared and he ran. What kind of Messiah is this? What's our Messiah that he's out here scared and runs? So something tells me, I, I think they found Jesus' response to be less than satisfactory. I, I think they were probably quite disappointed when Jesus looked at them and said, uh, go and tell that fox I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and to the third day. Then I'll reach my goal. Uh, go and tell that fox. Now, the fox, by the way, is it's the same animal that when you think of a fox, you know, little reddish looking things. The thing about a fox, nobody's really afraid of a fox. Foxes are not exactly terrifying. I mean, maybe if you're five, but nobody's really afraid of a fox. I mean, ah, woman killed by a fox attack. You know, no, it's, foxes don't kill you unless they have rabies, but foxes are a nuisance. Foxes are like vermins. Like, yeah, I mean, nobody wants them around. They, they're they're a, a bother. They can disturb you, but they're not dangerous. There's no danger from a fox. If you wanted to compliment, you would have said, go tell that lion. Yeah, no, no. Herod is no lion. Herod's a fox. He might be a little clever, maybe, although that's not really the implication here. We tend to think of foxes that way. In the ancient world, it's like, Look, you go tell that barman, tell that guy who is, I'm, I'm not a, afraid of him at all. He causes no fear in me whatsoever. He is not a person to be feared. 
You might be afraid of them. And oh, by the way, they were. You didn't see the Pharisees getting up and, and condemning Herod for marrying Herodias, do you? Oh, no, they're not going to get up and say anything. They're looking at John the Baptist going, whoo, look what happened to that guy. He got up and actually denounced their immorality. And they imprisoned and killed him. So we're not saying anything. Um, Jesus, he's like, you just, you go back and tell the guy who you've been talking to clearly. And you just let him know that here's what I'm going to do. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Behold, which means, by the way, listen up, pay pay attention. I'm going to be really clear here. Just listen. I'm going to cast out demons and I'm going to perform cures. Basically, I'm going to keep doing exactly what I've been doing. Not going to change my routine. Not going to change my ministry. I'm not going to change what I've been carrying out. One iota. For how long? Oh, today, tomorrow, to the third day. Which is a colloquialism. It's an expression. It basically means I'm going to do this, uh, you know, for the foreseeable future. Not forever. The moment will come. Uh, We'll get to the end here. I'll, I'll be done. But... Not going to be hurried. I, I, you're not going to drive me out of here. Uh, verse 33, nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day. I mean, basically, I am just going to keep doing what I'm doing. And uh, Herod, he doesn't really bother me at all. His threat doesn't threaten me at all. I'm not really going to carry out any kind of, you know, I'm, not, I'm certainly not going to run for my life. Uh, Jesus has a destiny. And he knows exactly what his destiny is. And Jesus has known what his destiny was from eternity past when he and his father sat around and discussed how this was all going to go. Jesus is going to come and he's going to be the Lamb of God. And Herod is not going to kill him early. Any more than Nazareth could throw him over the cliff. Any more than some storm was going to swamp him in the Sea of Galilee and drown him. He'd walk on the water if he has to. It's not going to happen. And he's not going to have Herod come chase him down early. It's not going to happen. So you guys go back and you tell that guy that you're all fearful of, that I'm not fearful of him at all. You go tell that fox. You go tell that varmint. You go, you go tell that guy who, frankly, I have no real regard for him at all. He murdered John the Baptist, you may recall. Uh, at the trial, by the way, they sent him to Herod. Jesus never says a word to the guy. Not one. We'll get to that when we get to it. Jesus never speaks to Herod. He's a corrupt, immoral guy. And then Jesus makes very clear to them exactly what's going to happen. Not only am I not going to run from Herod, not only am I going to just carry out the ministry I have to carry out, but here's where the third day, here's where the end is going to come. Because it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is going to perish, and he knows exactly where he's going to perish, and he's going to perish in Jerusalem. This is apparently like a proverb. This is kind of a, one of those sayings. There have been enough prophets who have actually perished in Jerusalem that it kind of became one of those, you say it with a little sarcasm. You say it with a little bit of dark humor and you wince. Uh, It's one of those things you don't actually want to admit. You don't don't really want to be famous for this, but yeah, actually a lot of prophets have been killed and stoned in Jerusalem. 
And so Jesus says to him, well, it just wouldn't be appropriate that I actually die outside of Jerusalem. Now, with maybe just a slight bit of dark humor, but of course, it's really not funny. And it won't be funny. Uh, when the moment comes, it'll be quite sober. And when the moment of judgment comes, the Jews are going to give an account for the fact that they are going to kill the very son of God. That is what they're going to do. And by the way, it's going to happen in Jerusalem. Jesus must die in Jerusalem because he's going to be the Lamb of God. He's going to be the final sacrifice, the one that actually works. Now, Jesus presents to us the balance that we need in this world. We have to live in this world. We're going to be confronted, and you can just watch the news and see, probably coming much sooner than later, we're going to be confronted with a government that is growing increasingly hostile to us. They're going to be clever about it. They're, they're going to try to misrepresent us. They're going to try to make us fearful. They're going to try to get us to act like we're afraid. See, we don't really believe it. If we actually trusted God, we, we wouldn't cave. So let's not cave. Let's stand. Speak the truth. That's what we need to do. And if they throw us in jail, well, we just start a jail ministry. We, we, we go on the long line of those people who have found themselves in jail. I'm not looking forward to that. I hope you'll all take care of my wife when that happens. But, you know, if that happens, it happens. It's not us on trial. It's them. And so we need to do that. We need to be like Jesus. They come and try to scare him. He's not scared. But the next verse, he talks about it's, I, prophets have to die in Jerusalem. But here's his heart. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together like a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. He loves these people. He loves the city of David. He has come with nothing but kindness, compassion, and grace to those who want to hear the truth. Now, to the Pharisees, they had no desire to hear the truth, they, and so he, he calls them what they are, religious hypocrites which is still giving them the truth. It's just one they didn't want to hear. But his heart is to bring about salvation. He comes to them with a heart of love, a heart of, heart of compassion. How I would have gathered you. He will come into Jerusalem on, on uh, the triumphal entry and like, if only you had known. If you had just, if your eyes had just been open to the day that is before you. But it wasn't. And they wouldn't repent. So Jesus presents to us the balance. Yeah, to Herod, he's like, you go tell that fox that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the ministry God has given me to do. I'm going to keep doing the things. That, and frankly, until, and by the way, this is true of all of us. When your time is up, your time is up. 
You're not going to prevent it. But when your time isn't up, you're indestructible until God wants you home. You keep doing what God wants you to do, he'll protect you. You'll just keep doing it. And when he's done, and there's no saying when he's done, it's like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? We've got the fiery furnace going over here. I was like, if you don't bow down, I'm going to throw in a fiery furnace. They're like, well, okay. I mean, our God has plenty of power to save us. Whether he will or not, we really don't know. But we're not bowing down. That's that. So, okay, do what you got to do. And that's, as believers, who we have to be to the world. They want to know, do we really believe this? Do we really believe the Bible? You're going to be put to the test. So, follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. They'll crucify us. Yeah, you know, they might. That's right, they might. And think of the glory awaiting you in heaven. Join the throng. So this is a great passage. I, this isn't one of those passages you want to just read over. This is a passage you want to drink in because Jesus is giving us clear principles about how to navigate a challenging world where people are going to come after us. No fear. No fear. Service to God. Trusting God all the way. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your wisdom, for your ability and your spirits and opening our eyes and hearts and giving us clarity in in just a crazy sin-filled world where the attacks are clever, where they're continuously working at portraying us as being the intolerant, unloving, unkind folks. May we hold firm, but be compassionate, be kind. Do our best to be as lawful citizens as we can be until our government comes between you and us. And then, Lord, give us the wisdom to know how to serve you, even when our government tells us not to. May we do it with grace and even then with compassion for those who just misunderstand who you are and your love even for them. So Lord, help us to be good stewards of the truth, to serve you, to speak truth, to not hesitate, to say the things that your word says with clarity and to help a lost and dying and morally confused world to know that someone speaks truth. We ask in your son's precious name. Amen.